a Faith at a Base podcast, 043, Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 holds one of the clearest and most detailed explanations of water baptism in the New Testament. It's the first time in history we see Christian baptism occur. As we know from our previous podcasts, theologians go to great length to explain why this passage of Scripture is not about water baptism by parsing prepositions and verifying verbs, but I think the passage is pretty easy to understand and completely uncomplicated. There's no need to dive into Greek linguistics and confusing explanations. Just read the passage with the heart of a child and it'll all make sense. So what's the context of our Acts passage? Peter is preaching the very first gospel message. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and is quite bold. His audience is thousands of Jewish pilgrims gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, which is just 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Peter presents a great deal of information about Jesus and explains all about the Messiah by offering proofs from the Old Testament scriptures. At the end of his sermon, in verse 36, he places the guilt and the blame of killing the promised Messiah squarely on the shoulders of the onlookers. Let's tune in and listen as he concludes his sermon. Acts 2, verse 36 through 41. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Peter tells these people, you killed the Christ. Now let's stop right here. Isn't that a little presumptuous of Peter? After all, many of these folks were not even in Jerusalem 50 days earlier, and even if they were, probably none of them had anything to do with the execution of Jesus. In fact, the argument could be made that it was the Romans who actually killed the Christ. What's going on here? Some clues are found in what happens next, Acts 2.37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They don't argue with Peter. They don't say, No way, dude, we weren't even here on that day. Instead, they accept the charge and are even cut to the heart. They're broken about their sin. They feel guilt and shame. What Peter did demonstrates that the death of Jesus is the responsibility of everyone. How can that be? Well, remember, Jesus died for the sins of all mankind. This is why Peter can make the claim that these Jews are just as guilty of the blood of Christ as the Romans. The truth is, we are all just as guilty as they are. When we understand it is our sin which put Jesus on the cross, that we're all guilty of killing the Messiah, our attitude should be the same. 
we should be cut to the heart. We should feel guilt and shame for our sin, but also hope and joy for the forgiveness and grace God offers. Peter preaches, and some of the people respond positively. Let's read that again. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The people seek justification. What shall we do? I think they were terrified the answer would be, There's nothing you can do. But instead, Peter tells them something wildly surprising. He opens the vast gateway of grace. In response to their desperate question, he says, Repent and be baptized. What? What's this? Repent and be baptized? What in the world is that all about? Well, there should be no confusion here. It's a simple, straightforward answer to a simple, straightforward question. Peter could have told them to do anything at this point in time. He could have said, say this prayer after me. Or he could have said, accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Or he could have said, stand on your head and spit nickels. But he didn't. He said, repent and be baptized when the people ask what they must do. Repent and be baptized. Why? Verse 38b, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two things happen in baptism. Our sins are forgiven, and God gives us his Holy Spirit. We know we do not deserve this. We know we cannot earn it, nor can we take some other path which might suit us better. We simply obey what Peter is telling us to do. It's very simple. It's very clear. Now, notice there are two commands repentance, and baptism. These two words are connected with that conjunction, and. There are two things required, according to Peter. Both must happen. Once these two biblical responses to the gospel occur, Peter tells us our sins are forgiven and the Holy Spirit will join us. These blessings do not precede obedience to Peter's commands. The two qualifications must be met before God bestows the gift of salvation. In today's world, many people are baptized as commanded by Peter, but very few truly repent before their baptism. The biblical pattern is tossed out and replaced by a modern plan. In this plan, people hear the correct message about Jesus, believe, and accept it. But when it comes time to obey the gospel, they're never told to repent before their baptism. They're led down a broad road with something like the sinner's prayer. Since they never followed the biblical plan of salvation, they do not have the forgiveness of sins or the Holy Spirit living in them, regardless of how they feel or what they believe. They have no real and lasting power over sin. Therefore, a truly changed life proves to be a fairy tale. It's pretty discouraging. This explains why the attrition rate in the modern church is as high as 90%. Good-hearted people make a sincere commitment but see no real change or power in their lives and leave the church quickly. It is so important that we understand the biblical pattern. The indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit is never given to a believer before repentance and baptism. In fact, when we study the scriptures thoroughly, 
we see God never gives the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit before obedience anywhere in the New Testament. This becomes even clearer as we read on. Acts 2.41 Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How many were baptized? 3,000. Exactly who were these people? How are they identified? Was it all the people who heard Peter? No. Was it just the people who had come from Rome? No. The people who obeyed Peter's command to repent and be baptized were the people who accepted his message. If you did not accept the message, you didn't get baptized. Or to put it another way, if you're not baptized, you have not yet accepted the message. You reject the plan of salvation. Now, Peter's not making up methods of conversion on the fly and telling the believers to perform his method in order to alleviate their guilt. He's fulfilling the commands Jesus gave him in the Great Commission, just 10 short days earlier. Jesus gave the apostles four vital commands which would be necessary to promote and further the gospel after his departure. Jesus told them, go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So, Peter is not standing there on the day of Pentecost just making all this up. He is following the exact pattern Jesus gave him just over a week ago. With this in mind, we understand why Peter uses this formula in his Pentecost presentation, right? Then, only the good-hearted people who accepted the message were baptized. This reminds me of another passage in Luke, which is very similar. Luke 7, 29 through 30. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. This passage presents two separate groups of people. One group is able to acknowledge or accept the message John preached, and one group rejected John's message. The only thing we see that is different between these two groups is whether or not they had been baptized by John. This is not to say that there was something powerful in the water, but this does speak to something powerful which happens as a result of a person's obedience to the instructions God puts forth by his word. Obedience to God's commands is what separates the sheep from the goats. Obedience indicates acceptance of the message. The same is true for John and on the day of Pentecost and today. People who accept the message will be baptized. If you have not been baptized, immersed in water, you have not yet accepted the message. Okay, back to Peter. He continues, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So now we learn of a promise attached to whatever Peter's saying. This promise will extend not only to the people he's preaching to, it extends to their children and all who are far off, for everyone the Lord God calls. But what is this promise thing? What promise is for you, for your children, and for everyone else? 
Is this promise, Peter's statement, that we will receive the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, absolutely. He has spoken eternal truth. But in context, I think there's something even more awesome. Think about this. Everything Peter presented to these penitent Jews are the instructions from the Great Commission. Peter is remembering and preaching the Great Commission. It's fresh in his mind. It happened 10 days ago. This is his mindset, his train of thought. And he does not forget something Jesus told him during the commission, which I think maybe we do. I think we tend to forget Jesus' last statement, which is just as much a part of the Great Commission as go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey. Matthew 28, 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus promised to be with us always. I think this is the promise Peter is referring to. Not just the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of God's Spirit. I think Peter's on a roll and just keeps remembering everything Jesus said, including his promise to be with us forever. Does it get any better than that? Our sins are forgiven, God gives us his Holy Spirit, and then he will be right here with us until the very end of the age. That's awesome. And to be sure, that promise only occurs when we have obeyed the Great Commission. This is absolutely amazing. But there's more. Acts 2 verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Yeah, there is something you can do to save yourself. It's not a bunch of good works. It's not a bunch of prayers. It's just what Peter told you to do. When you ask the question, what must I do? If you want to save yourself, just obey the gospel as Peter presents it. Acts 2.41 goes on to present the fact that 3,000 were added to their number that day. What does that mean? 3,000 were added to what? To the church. How were they added to the church? They were baptized into the church. So Acts 2 presents the very first gospel message. It happened on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. This message of salvation is still valid today. When people were cut to the heart and wanted to respond to the gospel, Peter provided the same prescription given by Jesus. Peter told the people, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit. This leads you to being added to the church. The conversions of Acts 2 are amazing. 3,000 people made a commitment that day. Peter had some pretty powerful preaching, didn't he? Isn't it curious that we never hear this sermon preached in the pulpits of our denominational world today? I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because Peter is just too hard to understand. Well, thanks for listening. Join the argument at www.afaiththatobeys.org slash blog.